Good morning and welcome to the Crude Street Podcast. This is our special Little Pink Drinks, Drinks edition where we're joined by Garth Nix in Sydney. Uh, just to throw around, good morning to you, Gary. Good evening to you, Jonathan and Garth. How, how's life in sunny uh, Chicago? It is sunny in Chicago. I mean, it's not sunny enough to take kids to the beach and so forth, like you're always telling me about. But next July, I'll be talking about taking my grandkids to the beach, and you guys will have rotten weather. Well, and tur- turning around <laughs> to Sydney, good morning to you, Garth. And good day to you. <laughs> good day here. I'm sort of halfway That's in between. True. Well, not quite halfway, but getting getting there. First of all, thank you for joining us in the podcast. We're very happy to have you here. No, As I, it's good to good to good to be here to talk to you guys as well. It, it is very reminiscent of the chances these things often are uh, to catch up as we would in a bar at a convention, which we don't get to do that often. Well, not often enough, and we're just talking about world, world fantasy, which is where we tend to all three of us catch up, and where the, the pink drinks reference comes from as well. Uh, yeah, yeah I think I, 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 that needs to be explained. But Jonathan, uh, you, you guys have your little pink sea breezes which i hope you're not actually doing well at nine o'clock in the morning but i have a glass and this is right at okay the I, I excellent well i have my usual pinot noir but uh, <laughs> I, I want you both to know at these wonderful parties that uh, that the um, australians always put on or frequently put on at world fantasy uh, and 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 you more or less ostentatiously drink these little pink <laughs> drinks you, you're not fooling us i mean all, all the Americans are thinking you're just playing with our Paul Hogan stereotypes, and 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 we're convinced that when you go back uh, to 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 SwanCon or something, you're drinking these uh, oil drum sized canisters of Fosters like all American <laughs> undergraduates do. Do you want to tell the story, Garth? Well, no, well, no one drinks Fosters in Australia, but uh, the pink drinks thing <laughs> comes from World Fantasy in, in Washington D.C., where Jonathan, Sean Williams, and myself. We're feeling rather the worse for wear one day. And we were discussing what could we drink that might actually be healthier for us, that might, in fact, uh, reduce hangovers and, and, and generally aid in our ability to survive the convention. And if I recall correctly, we asked a bartender what would be a moderately healthy drink. And <laughs> they suggested something with fruit juice. Mm. And that, in turn, inevitably led to sea breezes, uh, being mm. cranberry and grapefruit and a, and a pure spirit, vodka, uh, the theory being that this also led to a lesser hangover. And uh, we, we, we didn't realise they would be pink when they came out. Uh, <laughs> we, we, we've stuck by them ever since and spread it, I think. Absolutely. I've, I've noticed many other people drinking them now at uh, World Fantasies as well. Aside from the fact we like to buy them for people, I've noticed that other people have become converted <laughs> to the, the cause of the pink drink. It's the default. Yeah, pro- I mean, we've, got, we've got a meme going. It's been going for like eight years or something. That's mm-hmm. right. And so it is definitely definitely the thing. Sorry, yeah. It's the semi-official drink of world fantasy now, I suppose. It should probably get an award. <laughs> or, or maybe it you know, sort of should be presented as an award. I mean, should I, be, that's an even better idea. <laughs> I do notice, though, Garth, that in relating that story, you point, you know, you don't highlight the key sort of thing, which is at no point did we consider not having a drink. Now, that never crossed my mind. <laughs> You've just pointed it out to me then. I, I never even considered it. So as we as we gear up to another world fantasy, which I think you, Gary, may not even make. Is that right? 
I have a bat mitzvah that weekend, which cannot be moved. Uh, uh, my granddaughter. So, so I don't think I'll make it. Which is a pity. But as we gear up for that, how is life treating you these days, Gareth? Well, very well. Um, I'm perpetually behind in all my work, of course. I think it's something that we always discuss. And mm -hmm. I, I guess that's in common with many authors and editors. Uh, I, I very rarely ever talk to anyone in publishing who's actually ahead of all their schedules or has already delivered everything they're supposed to deliver. Uh, it does happen very rarely, but certainly not for me, not for many years, possibly because I agreed to do too many things. Um, they always seemed like such a good idea at the time uh, when someone invites you to do a story for an anthology, for example, mm -hmm. and you think, oh, that's a wonderful idea, often Jonathan, as it happens. Uh -huh. and, and I think, oh, that's a, that's a great idea for an anthology. I've almost, oh, I've almost got an idea for a story for that. And then a year goes by and all of a sudden you have to actually write it uh, in, in amidst everything else, the, the novel that has to be delivered and, uh, and so on. But uh, aside from that, no, things are, things are good. Um, I've got a new book coming out in May, yeah. co-written with Sean Williams, my friend Sean Williams, which is a new uh, children's fantasy called Trouble Twisters, the first book in that, in that series, which we've had a lot of fun writing. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, that co-writing experience. Uh, I've just finished another uh, basically young adult slash crossover uh, science fiction novel called A Confusion of Princes, which is in the editing process now and uh, will come out maybe late this year, maybe early next year. And, uh, and of course, uh, a bunch of short fiction, <laughs> some, some of it done and some, some of it yet to be finished. Well, I was, I was going to say that after what looks by your standards to be in a fairly quiet year, uh, from in 2010, where you really didn't have, I think you had one uh, one book out within in Lord Sunday. I think the last yeah. of the Keys to the Kingdom books. Uh, yeah. This year, potentially, you got what two novels, um, and other work sort of coming around. And I, I assume the stuff with Sean because uh, is, is going to come out somewhat more, more quickly. Because when you look at the exterior of the book, it doesn't highlight it, but it's actually the first in a, a series. Yeah, that'll be that'll be once a year. Yeah. Is that your? Is that your? Is that uh, those books with Sean? Is that your first collaboration, Garth? I've I've co-written screenplays before, uh, unproduced ones, um, as is the fate of so many screenplays. Um, and when I was at university or, or college, I co-wrote a number of things with with a bunch of people then. Um, but it's I haven't aside from that, it's it's the first time co-writing in prose uh, for a very long time. And I've never I've never co-written a novel, uh, so that it's been a it's been a very interesting experience and one that's been a lot of fun. Sean and I have actually been talking about co-writing something mm. for years and years and years, um, mm -hmm. probably back at least a decade. I would say we've been uh, we've been saying we must co-write something and uh, and have and have kicked around various ideas at various mm. times, which just didn't didn't come together, and then this one did. I would think he'd be delightful to work with, uh, he's, 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 especially if you're uh, doing something which I presume has a decent amount of comedy in it. Yeah, it does. Uh, we, we have a very similar sense of humour, and we have a very we have quite a similar taste, I think, in in books um, mm. and and in how we write. And I, and I guess perhaps most importantly, we're both sort of uh, hardened hardened professionals. As well, uh, which makes a difference. We've both been writing a long time, been uh, in publishing a long time, uh, mm -hmm. so uh, it, it helps to have that and to 
it, it tempers your expectations and your flexibility, I think, in, in both directions. Um, and we've always enjoyed just sitting around, you know, rabbiting on about stories and basically just making crap up. <laughs> <laughs> and then to do it sort of officially, to, to put it together for a story, it's really just an extension of, uh, of, of years of uh, yarning about stories and, and potential stories and, hey, wouldn't it be good if this happened and you could do that and then put this in and, you know, well, why don't, why don't we have an explosion, you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, I'm curious as to whether Sean has done anything in the young adult area before. Yeah. Oh, he, he ha- yes, he has. Um, he has. Okay. Yes, he has quite a lot actually, uh, though it hasn't travelled as, as widely as his his adult material. Uh, very. Mm-hmm. I guess. I guess part of what I'm. I'm sorry. Um, no, I was just going to say it hadn't. Very. He he wrote a series which was very centred in an Australian landscape. And I think that perhaps uh, was a barrier to it, it traveling more internationally, though though hopefully it will come back in the way that the books often never really go away. They, they can come back on the success of something later. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure we both hope that with Trouble Twisters, uh, if that gets the attention we hope it does, that that will, that will help bring, bring uh, some of Sean's young adult stuff out to a wider audience because uh, so, they're great books. And I think the sort of Australian landscape thing is a bit of a furphy, mm. which is an Australian word. <laughs> <laughs> a furphy, uh, meaning a... Um, uh, is, it, is it like a stalking horse or something? It's, it's just a fake thing. It's just like a, 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 like a, a, mira- like a mirage, a shadow. Uh, yeah, a stalking horse or a... A, a chimera? Or a, yeah, or a, or a sort of false reason, a... It's oh. something people use as a reason which doesn't actually exist. Yeah, I, I think. Well, uh, which, which uh, is, uh, and there are many, there are many furfies in publishing. People mm-hmm. editorial responses saying we can't do this book because of X, and X will invariably be uh, something that seems valid to them at the time, but but oh. often is actually not valid in a in a, in a broader sense. Mm. Um, and, I, and I'm thinking. I mean, I was looking. Uh, this is just by the by. I mean, I was looking at Margaret uh, K. McElderry's obituary, yeah. um, and uh-huh. I was, I, I think myself fortunate to have a rejection from Margaret McElderry from uh, the late 80s, early 90s for, for my novel, The Ragwitch, mm-hmm. which she liked a lot, but she said, we can't sell fantasy. No one <laughs> wants to buy fantasy. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's dead in the water. Uh, well, this was, is an interesting question. I'm sorry. Well, say, that wasn't a furphy. That was valid at that moment, but it was all too uh-huh. soon. To... Hmm. I guess a question I wanted to ask both of you, uh, uh, since it's it's come up, and now that I found out that that, that that Sean has written young adult fiction, is it is it just the books that I see or what I'm aware of? I remember a few years ago we were talking about uh, the the Australian Renaissance in science fiction, and that when we were just discovering Greg Egan and that sort of thing. It seems to me now that. Uh, with young adult science fiction and fantasy, I mean, with yourself and and, and now with Sean and 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 um, uh, oh Justine and Scott and um, and Margot uh, Lanigan, that there seems to be a disproportionate number of good science fiction and fantasy young adult books coming from Australia. I'm, I'm not sure. It it may... is, well, I'm not sure it's disproportionate because there's an awful lot of good stuff coming from elsewhere as well. I, mm-hmm. I think possibly being Australian is an additional identifier that makes us easy to remember 
<laughs> could be. Uh, but you were about to ask something else, Gary. No, I mean that that, that was essentially it. it. It it could be that I'm that I tend to see these things since I think one thing that may be uh, more true of uh, of what I see from Australia is that all of the authors I just named, I mean you, you, yourself and Margot and Scott and and Justine, also have essentially reputations among adult readers. So maybe that's what makes you more visible to us in the states. Yeah, I think that's a characteristic of YA in general, though. And in fact, I would, no one, as far as I know, has ever done any studies on this. But I think anecdotally, uh, the audience for young adult fiction is probably at least 50%, maybe higher, older adults. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, particularly particularly in, in, the, in the sort of middle ground, I guess. I mean, possibly the... The, the very, very big bestsellers, it definitely is adults as well. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm sort of losing my train of thought here. I guess what I'm saying is there are young adult books that are enormously successful amongst young adults and are not that widely read uh, by adults. And, and some of those are, are huge. But then there's many other young adult books that where the, the audience is, is more adult. Now, once you get into those mm-hmm. giant bestsellers, of course, everybody reads yeah, them. So... And they, they, and well, they, I think I, that's a different category. Yeah, I, they, they become monster bestsellers, which is is separate, is a separate category all of its own. It's a separate thing, but I think I think the point that you're getting at partly is that in fantasy and science fiction, adult readers are much more likely to pick up a young adult book than in some other genres. For example, my grandson, I have an eight-year-old grandson whose favorite writer is a guy named Dan Gutman who writes baseball novels, and they're not. Not bad novels about a kid who collects baseball cards, and each baseball card takes him back in time to the era of that player. Right. And I think this guy wrote wrote one or two adult novels that completely disappeared. Uh, no one wanted to read I mean, any any of his adult fiction. I remember when R. L. Stein wrote his first adult novel, maybe fifteen to twenty years ago. It was frankly awful, uh, and <laughs> and he did not break. He did not, he did not. It was a horror novel, but he did he was not able to take his sort of you know eight year old version of paranoid horror and transfer it into the adult world yeah. uh, all, all the all the weaknesses that were there in the books to begin with just became magnified when it became an adult-sized novel yeah he didn't he didn't manage to make the good stuff bigger just the bad mm. stuff <laughs> exactly <laughs> right i mean they're children's books which i think is perhaps a, a, a an interesting point too mm. uh, and, I, and i've talked about this before because i think young adult is a subset of adult not of children's uh mm. children is a category of, of its own and a particular uh, and has its particular you know, characteristics and so on. But young adult, I think, really doesn't belong as part of children's. It's not for older children. It doesn't come out of older children's books. It comes out of out of adult books. It's 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 a subset of, of adult. This is always confusing to explain because, of course, there are children's books which can be read at any age as well. Sure. And, in mm-hmm. fact, and in fact, the best children's books can be read uh, at any age as well and will typically offer something to the reader at any age, no matter what they're bringing mm-hmm. you know, to the book, what experience they're bringing to the book. But I, I do think uh, young adult books are essentially adult books that are particularly appealing to teenagers, uh, uh-huh. younger adults, which is a different thing to a children's book, which are, which are intended for children, even if they may have a much wider readership and they may, and they may appeal much more broadly. Uh, they are at their heart for the, the child who will lose themselves in it. 
Mm-hmm. They they are not for that necessarily for that that child's parent um, or whatever. I'm I'm not being as uh, <laughs> as clear as I might hope. Well, no, no, no you, you put something very clearly in, uh, as as a comment in, on the blo- you know the blog to the podcast some while ago, which sort of covered this. What I've been kind of curious about is uh, there's been a lot of talk about what is yet young adult, what isn't young adult, uh, and I'm curious. It, it seems to me that there's like there's a fuzzy area uh, where you you, know, you move from children's to young adult, young adult, adult to adult, and the stuff that makes something you know young adult but not children's and then eventually young adult but possibly adult is a very a very variable fuzzy area and it can fit in potentially books like tender morsels alongside books like trouble twisters well i think that's and that's where some of the, the problem arises when you talk about something like tender morsels which which is a difficult book in many ways i think it's a great book i uh, on on many different levels um i found it fascinating mm. for its craft and the way it was constructed as much as for its content. But one of the, the things that has made it controversial, of course, is people looking at it and saying, here's a children's book that deals with, with uh, sexual violence uh, and, and very adult uh, emotions and complications and so on, because they're perceiving it as a book for children. And to them, that means that eight-year-old, nine-year-old or whatever. But actually, it's not a book. It's mm. not a book for children. It, it is a book for young adults. Yes. Exactly as the term mm-hmm. means. Adults who happen to be younger than than uh, than you know, fully mature adults, but they are adults. They're yeah. just younger, and they do want to come to terms. Uh, they 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 want to to come to terms with many many compli- complicated things. And books, of course, are a great way mm. to contextualise and to deal with things and to think about them without actually having to experience them. Uh, and Mm-hmm. So, Tender Morsels is not for young children. I, I, absolutely, that's that's yeah. quite straightforward. But no one ever said it was. No. It's published as a young adult, but that is where the, the term does cause trouble, is where a lot of people think for some... And, I, and, it's, and it's interesting because you would think that, it, that something that says young adult is quite clear. Yeah. Uh, but, but people do see it perhaps because uh, YA is typically published by children's publishers... Uh, mm. And the way it, it sometimes, well, for many years, was was racked in bookshops with children, so it's been separated in many bookstores mm. for a long time. The expectations of what that label means uh, vary vary a lot, and and can can cause trouble. And of course, they also the other thing that causes difficulties is that because young adult is seen as a as a hot selling category, mm. you'll find publishers trying to get books into it, uh, which means that they move books. In, into it, which are much younger. So you will mm-hmm. find books that are for are suitable for 10-year-olds next to books that are suitable for 14, 15-year-olds and up. And that goes back to that entry-level thing I talked about, you know, the reading entry yeah. age, where yeah. I don't think books have an age range, uh, but they do have an entry level, a, a reading age level, a sort of maturity level, which could be 8 plus or 9 plus, and that's your classic middle-grade children's book. It doesn't mean you have to well, stop uh, you're, you can, you're about to convince me that young adult may be one of the more useful labels to have because if, if you adhere to that meaning of it. I had a couple of once who's been in this business, I guess, longer than any of us. 
uh, writing for all age levels. And it was, it, it was in some ways a very conversation. She was simply listing all the labels that she's had to write for, all the categories she's had to write for since the beginning of her career. You know, children's books, juvenile books, junior books for a while, middle school books, young adult books. And for a period, I gather, it just changed every five years. Uh, I don't think they have anything they call junior novels anymore, do they? No, was this Jane Yolen? Jane Yolen, yes. Oh, yeah. Well, when, when she was a publisher as well, so, I mean, she would have been publishing right. as well, and a, and a vast experience of, of the whole, of all, of all these changes. Uh, I mean, we still call Heinlein's juveniles juveniles. That's yeah. probably the only place that you still see that expression uh, exactly. is, is in science fiction uh, criticism or remembrance, uh, where Heinlein's, those novels are called juveniles, they, they would be called young adult, those, those particular books today, and would have been for the last probably 15 or 15 years, I guess. But yes, yeah, so they With certainly Andre, all the time. Uh, you mentioned, uh, in, in responding to something I'd written on, on the Locust blog about having grown up with Andre Norton, which I thought fascinating because I didn't know Andre Norton was that widely available in Australia. Is she young adult by today's standards? Well, some would be, and some would be children's. Mm -hmm. so it's, a, it's, a, it's a tricky thing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think she generally veered to a younger age group than Heinlein, yeah. but not always. Um, and some of her books that were published as adult would probably be called YA. I mean, for example, I would say Sargasso of Space, all the, all the Dane Thorson books yeah. would be young adult because mm -hmm. they're classically young adult. They are about a late teenager find, finding their... Uh, you know, finding his place in the world. Uh, you know, that's a Bildungsroman, mm. where uh, literally, I mean, he's on his voyage of, of discovery of, him, of, him, of himself and so on. Uh, then there's other books of hers that would probably call children's. It, it's tricky. Yeah? It's a, it'd be a case by case thing. Probably most of it yeah. could easily publishes YA. Well, and as far as I was concerned, when I was a kid, things like Sargasso of Space were simply ace paperbacks. I didn't know what yes. else they were. <laughs> they looked like science fiction. And probably uh, under Andrew North, were they, or rather than Andre North? No, uh, I don't think any of her paperbacks were under the Andrew North name. I think those right. were only hardcovers. Right. Whereas, Garth, you and I may have experienced, I don't know, Andre North in the same way. In, a, in the children's book section in a library, you know, with little colored stickers on the spine so you could find them and, and know they were both science fiction and in the kids section. Yeah, not, and I was reading them at nine or ten mm. Uh, the, and they were the, the glance hardcovers. She, yeah. she was quite widely published. You know, we were getting those British, those British hardcovers. I mean, I was lucky as well. My, my father is uh, a big science fiction fan, who regularly travelled to the United States. He did a lot of consulting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture and FAO and so on. And he'd just come back with tons of paperbacks. So I, I got to read lots of things <laughs> that weren't necessarily widely available quite young, and. and like most science fiction and fantasy fans, uh, I was reading the adult books at 11 or 12, mm. so, which, again, uh, confuses the issue of, of, of what is YA, what is children's, what is adult. I, I've, I've often thought if you went back and looked at some of the classic science fiction novels of the 50s, and I think Jonathan and I have talked about that, how many of them would look uh, like YA today? I mean, how many of them have young protagonists? Uh, more than human, all the major protagonists are kids. Yep. Well, I think most of them would be published as YA if, if that category existed. 
they would be published as, as YA, but they would probably still find an adult audience in the same way that, as I was saying earlier, I think a very large proportion of people buying and reading young adult, particularly science fiction and fantasy, are in fact much older adults. Yeah, I think I think that's always been the case, and, and I think that to some to some degree, uh, YA now too many older adults is actually seen as shorthand for traditional novel. Okay. In a, in a sense of it, it'll be a fairly straightforward narrative. It will have a story. It will have characters you can identify with strongly and so on. It will have those classic characteristics or traditional characteristics of a novel, uh, So, uh, which is still appealing to a general readership. And I think that's possibly one of the reasons why why a is a hot category mm. is because of all the adults looking for it, <laughs> looking for a plot <laughs> yeah. well yeah. yeah exactly looking looking for a plot yeah yeah were you reading the Heinlein juveniles at the same time as uh, the Nortons or afterwards uh, at the same time yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, in fact I'd be hard put to tell which ones I read first or or, or at what time uh, it would have all been mixed together, very, very similar time. Yeah. I'm always curious to know how well people remember these things because every now and again you'll come across somebody and they'll say, well, I read this and I read that and I remember buying this one off that rack and you're going, yeah. I, I remember, I mean, there's a few rare things and I don't know if they're just trotting out the few actual rare memories they have, but for me I kind of, like, yes, I remember getting Citizen of the Galaxy from the library and reading it and then frankly, you know, never returning it, um, which I shouldn't have done. Uh but to make amends, Jonathan. I have made mm. well. I have made amends in other ways. I, I confess uh, subsequently, but I still never returned that particular copy of Citizen of the Galaxy, which was you know. Well, see, interestingly, I read Citizen of the Galaxy in the Peacock paperback. Okay, it's interesting because Peacock was sort of the YA imprint of Puffin. Yeah, way back yeah. in in the in the seventies, uh, which is probably or maybe the late sixties. So even then, they were. They didn't put it straight into Puffin, mm. children's imprint. They put it into the, the into that intermediate one. Uh, I still have the copy somewhere, I think, mm. with the cover sticky taped on <laughs> where it uh, come off from multiple readings. Well, what I actually remember from that time was that a lot of the books I read uh, actually were color-coded. I mean, they were like dragons or something. Like a red dragon, a yellow dragon, a blue dragon, a green dragon. And it all had to do with exactly what age you were, whether this book was intended for you. Yes, well, that was a paperback range. Um, I've forgotten exactly who put it out, but, mm. uh, yeah, they had the, the dragons on the spine. And in fact, The Winter of Enchantment, uh, a fantasy novel, uh, which has got a sort of cult reputation because no one find any for, couldn't find it for years and years and years um, until uh, Neil Gaiman and, and a few other people publicly mentioned it how hard it was to find and talked about it and tried to track down the author. I don't know if you recall that particular internet quest to mm, yeah. Victoria Walker. Uh, that was that was one of those dragon books. Uh, and that and the hardcovers are still worth a fortune. But if you can find that paperback as well, that's probably still worth worth a fortune as well. What's your speaker? Also a cat no, 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 I was going to say, that because... There's also a category, we talked about books that would have been published as young adult. There are books that were published as adult novels uh, that, that have since, in reprint, become young adult classics. And Bradbury's Dandelion Wine is certainly one of those. 
Um, I suppose in, in, in the mainstream, Catcher in the Rye is one of those, or, or To Kill a Mockingbird. These were not young adult novels. <clears throat> They're still being read today almost exclusively by young adults, as far as I can tell. Well, um, To Kill a Mockingbird is, an, is a curious example because that is an adult novel with a child protagonist, which is mm -hmm. a, another category altogether, I would say. I mean, Catcher in the Rye, I think, is a classically a YA novel. Um, right. Things like, I mean, Ender's Game is probably... Uh, a, a prime example of something mm. originally published for adults, which has become very much a, a young adult science fiction classic. Yeah, right. And, and has been republished as such. As, a, as young adult, yes. Yeah, yeah. Since we've been talking about young adult science fiction, I'm kind of curious to what extent you see yourself as a science fiction writer. A, a science f f fiction writer. A science f f fiction writer. Yeah, you know what I mean. Science was, f fiction. There was, there was a strange, there was a strange Skype stutter there. Ah, uh, yes. I, yes. Have we all, have we all uh, the King's speech now? And we <laughs> <laughs> Hang on, I'll just practice. The, I'll just uh, practice that uh, bunch of words that King George liked to get through to help him. Might <laughs> cut this out of the podcast. Um, so, funnily enough, I was asked this question quite recently for an interview for something or other, mm. and I had to think about it for a while because I don't really think of myself as any as a particular writer of any kind. Um, I don't I don't particularly think of myself as a fantasy writer, though obviously I am, or a science fiction writer, though I am occasionally, um, or a children's writer, or a young adult writer, uh, though of course all those all those labels apply, and I'm very very happy to have them all applied because I love all of those things. But I don't really... Someone asked me uh, you know, to, to be specific about what I do. I would generally say I'm a writer, I'm an author, mm. and I flip-flop between saying what I write. Um, I'm not sure for any conscious reason. Maybe I adjusted to whoever's asking me the question. <laughs> um, I don't... Probably science fiction writer, I think of myself as least because I don't write all that much science fiction as it's, as it's, as it's generally held. Um, even the science fiction I have written tends to be pretty woolly at the edges. Mm. There's not an awful lot of science in the fiction. Um, and I read hard science fiction. I, I, I like some of it a great deal. Uh, well, I read everything. Mm. Uh, and I think that there's great, exam you know, there's great work in every, every part of, of, of the whole field. Um, but it's just not something I feel like I need to pin myself down sure. to say I am this particular sort of writer. I belong to this particular, uh, this particular set of writing. Yeah. But they... it's fantastic in some ways. I mean, isn't that, isn't that um, a common thread? Certainly in everything of yours that I know, there's a fan, what, what Clute calls fantastica. Uh, oh, which... yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And in fact, um, I have written uh, rarely strictly contemporary realistic fiction um, mm. but I've interestingly I when I set out to do that and I have set out to do it at various times I invariably find myself injecting the fantastic uh, it does seem to be <laughs> a second nature for me that I I am not I can't write a straightforward realistic piece of fiction um, I mean I can yeah. but I really do uh -huh. Because something always happens. There's always some element of the fantastic creeps in, e even if it's only a suspected element of the fantastic. As in, maybe there's something going on that's not that's mm. beyond uh, 
beyond this reality. So it does it does seem to be second nature with me that uh, that there's always something going on in in that regard. I, I just don't know what you call it. Yeah, yeah. Whatever. It's, gen- it's, it's, it's genetic, I'm sure. Uh, I don't know. I, I, had the same, I had a similar conversation with Mary Rickert, who at the beginning of her career, until she found Gordon Van Gelder, was writing stories that kept going off into fantastic dreamlike areas. And, and because of the people she'd been dealing with, writing tutors and writing groups, she kept trying to fix that until finally Gordon said, no, that's where the story is going. You should do that. And once she realized that, Mm. That that this is what she did almost uh, instinctively. She became comfortable with it. Um, yeah, and I think you do have to to write what comes out of you. And if you are often often what happens if you are studying at a university that has a particularly realistic tradition or, mm-hmm. or expectations, you do feel like you're doing something wrong, and uh, and and that that can try and direct you down a, a different path but it, it doesn't work if, if if what you've you've got inside you and it wants to come out so to speak yeah. is, the fan, is the fantastic um then then you, i think you need to go with it yeah. i guess the, yeah. i guess the reason i asked were twofold first of all i was talking with ellen datlow yesterday uh, or emailing and we we're sort of saying we we're talking about about you for a particular reason and she'd said, well, Guy's never written science fiction. And I'm going, well, yeah, he has. I mean, there were Shades Children, obviously. And there's been a couple of short stories, uh, most notably to my way of thinking, the story you did for me for the Starry Rift. Yeah. Uh, uh, infection? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Infestation. Infestation, sorry. I, I should remember. Infestation, yes. I apologize. Yeah, infestation. Um, and, of course, now the book that's coming out, well, probably around about Christmas or sometime early next year, Confusion of Princes, which really does take off from the whole Andre Norton, Robert Heinlein kind of uh, young adult science fiction story. Well, it's a, it's a space adventure. Yeah, um, I, I think is is fair to say, or a science fiction adventure. But it, but it's a kind of science fiction that that you know it is fairly it's fairly woolly in the science. <laughs> um, but but certainly, uh, I think you could say a confusion of princes is science fiction. It does certainly fit into the into a tradition of science fiction, but possibly. It's an adventure story first. Mm. I mean, there's more to it than that, obviously. I, I would hope there's always more to it. And I think maybe all my books are adventure stories primarily. And then they have the trappings of fantasy uh, comes after that. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I do... Sorry, yeah, Dave. there's a certain a certain. No, it's it's. Um, I, I was thinking that at some point, I years ago, I did a dictionary of science fiction critical terms, and I can't remember whose term it was. But adventure science fiction was at one time thought of as a subgenre of stories that were probably uh, as much derived from, probably more derived from Robert Louis Stevenson than from H.G. Wells. Uh, where, where the, the the adventure comes first, and the setting is maybe science fictional. But essentially, what you want to do is to uh, is, is to write a good story for a, for a generation that maybe didn't grow up on sea stories or South Sea adventures or uh, mistaken identities or, or, or medieval uh, things and that sort of thing. So, go ahead. I think that's definitely I, I fall in the Robert Louis Stevenson tradition, not the H.G. Wells one. And I think that definitely mm-hmm. applies. And, and in fact, looking at my stories, uh, my short fiction. Uh, they're always they're always adventure stories of one kind or another, with different kinds of of settings and uh, and motifs. Mm-hmm. Most of which are fantasy, but they're drawn from many different 
areas of fantasy, uh, including you know, westerns and uh, sea stories and, and so on, or, or combining elements of, of different genres uh, to combine swords and sorcery in the sea story, for example, like mm-hmm. I did. I did for one of my Sir Herod and Mr. Fitz stories. Um, so, uh, interestingly, I'm finding a label for myself. I'm, I'm an adventure story writer who uh, who happens to uh, to delve with. <laughs> <mostly. laughs> it, 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 it amazes me, though, how many... Uh, because one of the things... Um, a couple of weeks ago, Jonathan and I were talking about uh, Conrad in the Heart of Darkness and whether that really belongs in the prehistory of the field. And this past week, I was reading a collection of Peter Beagle stories, and there's a Robert Louis Stevenson story in there, uh, which he says, this is my homage to Robert Louis Stevenson. And I've seen any number of writers cite Stevenson as an antecedent, even though, well, a few of things that he wrote were overtly fantastic, but they're not, they're not thinking about things like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. They're thinking about Treasure Island. They're thinking about the Black Pirate. They're thinking about um, you know, the classic adventure stories. Uh, and I, I, I do think that's and, and I know Heinlein read that stuff because I learned that uh, from from reading about him. Uh, well, so, I so, I, so I do I, think. But I think history yeah. is fantasy. His, history. I mean, I love historical fiction as well, and in fact, I, I would write it if if I could do it better. Um, I think mm-hmm. one of the reasons that I do write fantasy is because I find it more difficult to write historical fiction with the degree of. Uh, accuracy that I would, that I would like. Um, mm-hmm. but, but history to me, history and fantasy, they, they feel very similar to me. They are both you know, depictions of, I mean, historical novels depict worlds that, that possibly did exist, but it is a particular writer's version of that world because, of sure. course, it can't be exactly as it was. And in much the same way that a fantasy writer creates a world, often using very similar pieces to build it uh, if you, you think of the sort of the middle ground of medieval fantasy stories and so on um so I, I i love them both and i think they feel very similar to me so you know the black arrow can be an antecedent of of of, of fantasy and science fiction as can treasure on and, and so on uh, in terms of this, the similarity of, of of setting and adventure and and just the the feeling of the books. Yeah, thanks for correcting me. I meant the Black Arrow. Uh, there's an amusing <laughs> story. I wasn't, well, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't correcting you. you. Actually, where I'm sitting, there's a copy of the Black mm-hmm. Arrow exactly at eye height across from me. Excellent. And as I was about thinking of Robert Louis Stevenson titles, I just looked straight across and saw it, and that's why I said the Black Arrow. I didn't even hear what you said before, so... <laughs> Oh, I think I said the Black Prince or something, but I certainly meant the Black Arrow. But oh, okay, uh, right. the story you're telling about uh, historical fiction—it's uh, uh, something that Cecilia Holland told me a long time ago. Uh, she had written one science fiction novel called *Floating Worlds*, which is kind of a, a hidden classic. It's a very good science fiction novel. And I, the fir- first time I met her, I think, "Why didn't you write any more science fiction?" She said her response was, "I didn't mean to," but she does such oh. In intensive research, I mean, to the point of traveling to parts of the world where a scene takes place and seeing how the scene would play out. She was up, according to her, she was up against a deadline for a historical novel. She hadn't had the research done, and her response was, I'll just have to make it up and pretend it's on another planet because I don't know enough history to write the novel the way I wanted to. Yeah, yeah, well, I can completely understand that. And of course, 
one of the things that does make her historical novels so good is mm. the feeling that it, it's true. And, and I, I suppose that what makes any novel work is it feels true, whether it's mm. made up or not, entirely made up, I mean, of a, of a whole cloth or, or not. Uh, if you can get that, that sense that it feels true, then it, it will work regardless mm-hmm. of what it's made up of, whether it's science fiction or fantasy or it's historical or it's contemporary realistic fiction. Uh, if it feels true, then then you've got a, a book that will work and will last. And I think you can make it true even within the context of a, of a fantasy novel. One of the things mm-hmm. I think I learned from Cecilia, when she went to Turkey at some point, uh, she was writing about some, uh, ba- some battle in one of her historical novels, and she looked at the landscape and she looked at the hills and figured out this army could not have done that at that time. And it occurred to me what she was telling me was that her characters and her figures have to interact with the landscape rather than the landscape being there for the convenience of what she wants the characters to do. And I think good fantasy does the same thing. I think if it creates a believable world, the characters have to work within that world. And and, and Tolkien actually does that very well. I completely agree with you. And I think the other aspect, too, is that your characters have to feel real, which is, of course, mm-hmm. you can completely do in in fantasy. It doesn't matter how fantastic the world is or what elements you're using. If it feels like those people are real and they are interacting with that real world, and the whole thing will will feel true, and that's and, yeah, and the best best writers can do that. T- Tolkien, as you say, fantastically well. Mm. Even though they are hobbits, they are people. Mm. Very much. But 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 they're people that come out of that world. That's the thing yeah. that uh, yeah. the bad fantasy gets wrong all the time, is that uh, the, the 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 people are. Uh, well, actually, I'm not going to mention any titles. We always get emails back saying, "Mention the titles, <laughs> mention the titles." Uh, one of the easiest ways of avoiding that problem is writing a fantasy that transplants contemporary people into that world so you don't have to create people who are of that world. Uh, but even then, they have to interact with characters who are of that world. And the fact that you know this, this geography, I, I, I know one of the things that I remember when Brian Aldous was writing his Heliconian novels and began with all the Hal Clement stuff, the, the this is what the sun would look like, this is what the planet would look like, this is what the seasons would look like. Once he'd done all that, then he then he started working on his characters because he started thinking through, uh, I think Heliconia is one of the underestimated classics of science fiction. He started imagining what societies and what characters would evolve from, from the world which he had imagined from a hard SF point of view. Hmm. Yes. Okay, that ended that part of the discussion. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm actually thinking about it. It's been a long time since I read Elko, yeah. and I was thinking about it. I, I think there are different ways to derive your story and your characters. Mm-hmm. That, that's, an, that's interesting because in fantasy, there are often fantasy writers who develop their landscape first and then find their characters and their, their story and so on. And some of them spend enormous amounts of time on on that world, on the landscape, the language. So, I mean, I mean and Tolkien is, is famous in this regard because he actually did spend so much work on language and history and mm. so on, and, and he, he, he created all this incredible depth of knowledge about about the world. And then there, of course, there, there are others like me, uh, essentially, who often know nothing about the world and start with a character and the beginning of a story and discover the world through the character 
This sounds so much like a conversation I was privy to once. It was I, I, I was sitting on the sidelines of this conversation at a ReaderCon uh, between a, well, let's say a well-known but very formulaic fantasy writer uh, who shall remain <laughs> nameless. No, no, no. <laughs> and, 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 and John Crowley, who I will name. And right. the fantasy writer was explaining to Crowley uh, in, in very avuncular terms that uh, all you have to do is work out the landscape, and then the characters just pop out of the landscape. They just fall in place. Like and mushrooms. Crowley had, yeah, Crowley had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> Crowley's view was, you, you think of a character, and the whole story grows from that. And I thought, okay, here are two diametrically opposed ways of approaching imaginary worlds, hmm. and they're never going to see eye to eye. No. And and of course, there's a lot of lot of space in between as well. There are, there are mm. people who do things all kinds of different ways. I mean, there are even people who write books backwards yeah. from the ending first. Uh, mm. it's, it's interesting. And in, in talking to the beginning writers, who are often very keen to to, to know how you did something, because they, they think that's how you do it. Yeah. But of course, that's just how how I did it. It could mm -hmm. be different from how they're going to do it. And there are so many different ways of writing novels and of, of creating things that work. Um, I'm, I'm always very reluctant to say, this is the way you do it. I can say how I've have, done it. But... Have, have you taught at Clarion? No, I, I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm a serial shirker of, of workshops and uh, <laughs> teaching. Um, I mean, for many years, I just never had time, uh, part, partly from uh, you know, the, the classic reason of, of having a day job as well as writing for many yeah. years. And then I just still didn't have time, even when I didn't have a day job, <laughs> writing and, and all the other stuff that, that goes with it. Um, we were talking earlier, when Jonathan was saying, at a fairly quiet year in, in 2010, and I was saying it didn't feel that quiet to me. Uh, mm. and, and one of the reasons, of course, was Lord Sunday coming out, the last in the Keys of the Kingdom, Books yeah. spent a lot of time promoting it. Yeah, um, I didn't didn't do an American trip, but I did a UK tour and uh, uh, did a tour here in Australia and and a lot of other stuff. And probably lost two months in in just promoting that book. Mm. Um, which uh, it's funny how the, the time goes. And I spent a lot of time writing as well, which mm. we've not yet seen the mm. fruits of of, of, of that work. Um, but, but it, it is interesting how, uh, how quickly the time goes. Uh, so yeah, I, I don't teach, but, um, no, I was, I, I, I wasn't, uh, I was, I was simply curious because when you said no, that no, you no, could no, only talk about, well, I, I think one of the reasons Clarion succeeds and I don't know, I, I've seen on Twitter today that maybe people are have to, if they're trying to sign up for Clarion, they have to do it now. But one of the things I think that makes that succeeds is, is, is that they, there are always a variety of writers who, like yourself, can only describe what they do. And the students get exposed to six or seven different, yeah. completely different That's approaches, as opposed to a, an, an MFA program in a college, uh, which says, okay, this is the way you have to write, and this is what the New Yorker is looking for this week. And, and I think the other good thing about uh, Clarion and, and things like it is that they are taught by I think it's good to have that mix of writers, but they also are practicing writers who are out there doing it at the moment and are published right now and and uh, and have been published and often have a great depth of knowledge. And they have editors as well, which I think is is, is mm. very helpful. I mean, anthologists and, and so yeah, on. Yeah. Um, but 
and uh, and a particular focus, of course, in in genre in genre fiction, which you often don't have in MFA programs, or, or they have a focus on on a, quite a narrow band of contemporary literary. Oh, it may be prohibited in MFA programs. <laughs> well, it can be absolutely. Yeah. Have either of you been to writers' workshops? I've not. Yeah, well, I did an undergraduate degree in writing, so um, uh -huh. uh, I did a Bachelor of Arts in Professional Writing at what's now University of Canberra, so I, I had many, many workshops uh, for, for many years. I, I said I don't, I don't teach. I do occasionally do, uh, I, I would do occasionally do workshops, and I, I do talk to individuals mm. often. Yeah. Uh, I just don't do any sort of formal yeah. stuff as I, a rule. I, I had one creative writing class at the University of Kansas, and the instructor for about four weeks of it was Joseph Heller, uh, oh. who, had, who, who, who found writing extremely painful. He was enormously entertaining. Joseph Heller was as funny as you would expect from reading Catch-22. But his basic point was, I have no idea what I'm doing, but whatever it is, <laughs> don't do it because it really hurts. <laughs> oh, that could be useful, I suppose. And I know that Charles would always basically start off by trying to scare people out of doing it anyway if you possibly could, on the theory that if you can be scared out of it, you probably should be, which I'm not entirely sure is more useful than it is simply glib, um, but was an, a, an interesting point of view. Well, you know, it, it, no, that matches something that Heller said in that class, which is, has haunted me ever since uh, and, and probably kept me from being a writer. Uh, <laughs> one of the kids in the class who subsequently published a couple of sort of avant-garde 60s, kind, 70s kinds of novels um, asked him, it, it, this, this, this fellow student of mine, very bright guy, had been reading flyleafs of novels and realizing from, from what it says on the flyleaf that, well, you pretty much have to be a longshoreman and a coal miner and a short order cook and do all these things before you can write a novel. And, and Heller said, it, take any job you want, major in anything you want, because if you're going to be a writer, it will find you. You won't have any choice. And I thought that's probably of, of, of a lot of the writers I've talked to. Uh, that's something I found to be very common. I found people from all kinds of professions, and there are people like myself who really wanted to be a novelist, and uh, and it just didn't happen. It, it it didn't force itself upon me the way it did. Uh, did did that happen to you, Garth? Did it just happen? Did you had no choice but to be a writer? Well, I, I think I had a choice. I think you always have a choice, but but mm -hmm. certainly uh, I always wrote, and I just kept writing. And as I've said, I'm various occasions I was too dumb to quit. Uh, I, just, I just kept writing. And, I mean, interestingly, people often presume, they look at my, my body of work and the other books are published around the world and so on, and they seem to think it was just straightforward. I just started writing and snap, got published, and that was it. But, of course, it wasn't like that. And uh, and I had the, the typical road of, of many rejections and, and so on. Even after my first book was published, my second novel was rejected. Uh, after, mm -hmm. after, so even even once I'd got started, I and, and that second novel's unpublished to this day, uh, and it wasn't even my second novel really. It was in fact my third novel, but coming after <laughs> the first published one, and, and mm -hmm. so on. But I I always kept writing, uh, just despite that. And I think you do have to have that. You have to have that thing where you're always getting ideas and you're always starting to write them down and. And then you keep going back to them, and and eventually you learn how to finish them, and to, mm -hmm. to do with them. Uh, and that's the hard part: is, is finishing the things you begin. And it took me quite a few years to to do that. I had so many 
partial manuscripts, partial stories. Uh, but I did learn it, and I and I kept at it, and and I was too dumb to quit, and I still am. <laughs> I still still have too many ideas. I have more more ideas than I can ever possibly write. Uh, and to tell stories and, and and get them out there and sometimes they, they work to my satisfaction and sometimes they don't. Uh, sometimes the ones that I like the most don't don't do all that well in the outside world. Sometimes they do. It's you, you have to sort of disassociate what you do with what happens to them. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. I would write them anyway. Obviously I'm pleased when when books go well and and I'm I'm very happy to be able to make a living from from what I do, but if I couldn't, I would I think I would still write. I would just go back to one of my default jobs, which would be in publishing, uh, which I worked in many years. I mean, and that's funny too because I worked in publishing. I was an editor and I was an agent. Weirdly, uh-huh. people, people also presume that that I wrote after doing that, and it was by being an editor and an agent that I got published. So it was that who you know thing, not what I did. But in fact, I was a writer long before that yeah. and I was always writing and in many ways the publishing jobs came about because I wanted to find something to do with books yeah. in my day job to pay the rent and stay alive while still being able to write because I love books. But it, it is, is that where, uh, Yeah. Uh, uh, I was going to say that almost leads us into what we thought we were going to be talking about during the <laughs> podcast, uh, um, which is uh, which is all the stuff that's happened in the last week now uh, because I know you were you were an edit- editor for Harper Collins was it that's right yeah. um, and some other company okay. Harper Collins the, the uh, biggest commercial publisher I've worked for right and and now within the last week we've seen uh, well your major bookseller uh, in in Australia uh, basically go under Borders in the United States going under. Uh, what's the name of the uh, of Finn? I think and the, the major distributor in in, in Canada. Yeah. Uh, and and this this you know this looks like a publishing version of what happened with the banks uh, worldwide a couple of years ago with a with a global recession. Uh, is is this going to make it absolutely hopeless for a young writer doing what you were doing so many years ago to even think about making a career of this? I don't think so. Um, it is a very big shakeup. But there's all kinds of different reasons at work, and not not always the same reasons either. Um, I mean, commentators here have been quick to point at the, the Red, Red Group Retail, which owns Borders and Angus and Robertson, mm. uh, two two big chains. And you know, a lot of the commentary has been, uh, you know, well, this 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 is a result of of the uh, technological revolution and so on, uh, the rise yeah. of the books, and yeah. and also the rise of online selling. More importantly. And that and that's true to a degree, but but what they're neglecting is is that in many ways that particular failure is is more is more a, a a case of the failure of the private equity model, because to buy borders they borrowed an enormous amount of money, mm. uh, mm-hmm. which they couldn't and they couldn't service the debt. So it's it's a failure of the same kind of many other kinds of failure, and they also failed to manage that technological change. Uh, there's other factors as well. I mean, it's definitely true the the rise of the Australian dollar has not been our, our dollars now at parity with the US dollar first time ever. It stayed high for a long time. Historically, it's been uh-huh. seventy cents. Now it's yeah. been sitting around a dollar for a long time. And publishers and distributors here 
have been very slow to adjust their pricing accordingly. Yeah. That's opened the doors to all the online sellers who are very keen to get into you know, Amazon in the US and Amazon in the UK and book depository right. and so on. So there's, there's all those things, but uh, that's one part of it. And I do think that that, that is a technological change that can't be resisted. Uh, obviously, you can't you can't resist those changes. There will be massive shakeouts because of that. The big superstore, which compete, I mean, they used to compete on the on the basis of range and price, and they can't compete right. on range with an internet store, no. and they and they can't compete on price typically as well. So they're not offering you anything else. They're not offering you expertise or uh, you know some of the things that, that that some independents do and so on. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a norm. There is an enormous shakeup in in retail book selling. There will be big changes. Those flow back to publishers and, and, and will create big problems there as well. But there's also opportunities uh, coming as well. I, I think the whole ebook revolution offers opportunities. While, while it's a huge challenge to booksellers who traditionally have been our partners for a very long time, um, and that's that's a sad thing, but uh, it's it's a wave coming in. You, you can't do anything about it. It offers opportunities. It offers opportunities to as, as well as threats. It's nearly all threats to booksellers um, and publishers. It offers some opportunities too, as well as, as threats. So I think it's it, it's a very changing uh, environment, but it's not all it's not all bad. Uh, to, to cheer myself up, I some look, <laughs> I look at the UK. I mean, Borders there, same thing. It was bought uh, with an unsupportable debt load. They went bust mm-hmm. Christmas before last, but right. there's still there's still booksellers in the UK. There's still sure. books being sold. There's still publishers publishing probably too many books. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of change. There's going to be a lot of manoeuvring around that change. But at the end of the day, uh, there, there will still be books written, books published, books sold, bought, read. Uh, whether it's going to make it more difficult for uh, for beginning authors, I'm, I'm not sure. I think it's always been difficult. And it's mm. been difficult yeah. in various ways. Um, if you go back 25 years, one of the great difficulties if you're an Australian author was there wasn't all that much Australian publishing and if you're dealing with American or British publishers, everything went by mail and took months and months. Right. Uh, you had incredible delays and, and and various cultural issues and so on. So I'm, I'm reasonably, possibly because I am reasonably <laughs> Anyway, I'm, I'm pretty much a glass half full sort of sure. person. Uh, do you think? I, I was going to say, do you think the future for for book selling is the smart independent model, or do you think change will continue? I I think you have to be very cautious in predicting what's yeah, going yeah. With, with books. Uh, I don't think your I don't think the chain the chain that competes only on 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 price and range has had it. Yeah. Much you have to be offering. Yeah much more to it um i think some of the independents that an independent that is very well established and has a very good uh, loyalty base and probably works at it very hard with loyalty schemes and so on and is also a destination that's very appealing uh so it's somewhere people like to go anyway mm. regardless mm. of whether they find a thing or not uh that probably offers super high speed broadband and lets you sit around all day and has a great cafe and and has you know, really uh, you know, good people to talk to, and so on, um, and has the reading groups, and 
and offers all that sort of social stuff in addition to just selling books. They'll probably do fine. Um, some of the independents that that uh, that don't have that, I think, will be in trouble as they have been for for a long time. But I do think it's it's going to be very hard to predict exactly what happens. Um, the supermarkets and the discount department stores will continue to sell the best sellers. Uh, mm-hmm. You know that that will that will continue. Um, e-books will 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 continue to rise as a proportion of the market. Uh, there'll be more and more electronic books. Yeah, it's it's difficult. I'm always reluctant to to try and predict. Who knows what will all happen? Well, I don't. Yeah, I don't think it's possible to predict. I think you're right about uh, some astonishing percentage of bestsellers are now sold by Walmart in the states, for example. Yeah, uh, and yeah. and and for young writers, especially in a genre. Uh, or a set of genres that uh, that tends to have loyal and fairly informed readers like science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Uh, what I keep thinking is that there are as many people willing to pay for the privilege of reading a famous author as there ever were. Uh, if, if anything, probably that figure is larger than it used to be. The mechanism by which may be changing radically in ways that are terrifying to a lot of readers right now uh, but at the same time, there are possibilities that, you know, the backlist, which has now disappeared because of inventory problems, is now beginning to reappear. Um, and, and now you can get uh, out-of-print books online, and, and the author can still generate income from books that, uh, you know, in, in, in the old distribution model, weren't generating any income at all. Well, that's one of the interesting things with e-books is it's enabled authors to become publishers again. Mm. and. Uh-huh. Uh, and get that backlist up, which, as you said, were un- uneconomic uh, in, the, in the old paper model, but now become economic again, and often directly to, to the author uh, or right. the author in association with an aggregator like Smashwords or, or whoever. And that's certainly something that I know many, many people uh, are investigating. I mean, it's interesting you, talking about the percentage of bestsellers sold uh, um in, by Walmart or, or the big supermarkets and so on, because one of the things that may be happening, and I think this is a problem, uh, is that we probably are seeing a tendency where the big bestsellers are selling even more and mm-hmm. the whole mid-list is, is disappearing more, which probably will make it more difficult uh, breaking in and also much more difficult for authors who who've had a modest start and it's not and it's not built and it's not continued and it's not got bigger uh, because they're the ones who the, the print publishers will drop very quickly. But then again, mm-hmm. maybe they can still continue through that, that, that e-book backlist side of things. Uh, I guess the problem there is, is that paper still is, in fact, by far the majority of sales, mm-hmm. even, even with the, the rise. And I think there is a... There will be a greater proportion of ebooks sold, but it's not going to even probably even out for quite a few years, like 50-50. Yeah. So you're missing out on the paper sales, even if you're getting the ebook sales. But then again, you're probably getting a greater proportion of the revenue. So and maybe yeah. maybe it will all work out. Yeah. I'm I'm curious as to as to what's going to happen with ebooks. Not the least because I listen to a lot of people talking right right now i read a lot of stuff about it and the impression i get is that we're at such a turning point such a point of flux it's it's reminds me a great deal because i used to work in the record business of what it was like in 
the, the early 1980s, uh, when you were moving from one format to another and it had unexpected consequences that nobody really anticipated at all. I mean, I don't, I think it'd be fair to say that nobody in the music business really anticipated that when you went from LP to CD, that you're going to end up basically giving away the farm because it was all digitized. Um, and it seems to me that an awful lot of the, uh, forecasts for about free books, which are happening now, particularly, I mean, because of things like, the iPad and its enormous sales because of things like the improvement in the Kindle and how it's selling uh, very, very well. People are, you know, sort of looking to forecast, but it seems to me really we can't forecast very meaningfully at all. We don't really know that much about what the ebook market Im will be and the impact it will have in, say, three years' time. Well, I guess that's true. I mean, people are looking at what's been happening and trying to project that forward. Mm. And, of course, that, that may not be valid. Mm. Um, but but I, I do think that if you can make if you can make the an ebook readily available, easy to find on Amazon, Apple, BNN, whatever, and it's mm. priced at a point where it's easier to buy it than to try and find it to pirate it, then people will buy them. And I think that's driving that, oh, that yeah. is driving a lot of these predictions, and that there will be a sustainable industry as long as mm. people will buy them, as opposed to just sharing them around. Um, mm -hmm. And, and I, I actually do think that that will happen, but uh, they do have to they do have to be readily accessible and at the right price point. And of course, this is the other the other point for again for beginning authors is that you have to know what you're looking for, and uh, invisibility will be the, the greatest yeah. problem. Yeah, I think for many beginning authors. Well, I mean, someone hey. like me is very fortunate to have been around quite a long time and to and to be visible just by having a history and having books out there um, for quite a long time and people reading them. So it, it, you know, I do have a platform to, yeah. to launch those eBooks. Yeah, very much. Would today, having been a uh, having been an agent, at least in the prelapse area, area as well as a publisher, would you want to be an agent today, Gareth? Yeah, I, I actually loved agenting. Um, it's probably my favorite job in publishing because really? – yeah, I um, I like finding things. I like finding books. So I always enjoyed reading the unsolicited manuscripts, often unkindly called the slush, <laughs> slush pile. And I try always try to avoid that. Uh, it might be fair to call it a dross pile, which occasionally you find a uh, a sparkling gem. Uh, and I love I love finding things. And I, but I also I I enjoy the business of publishing. I liked. I liked finding stuff and then trying to get the best possible deal for an author, mm -hmm. trying to uh, help them mm -hmm. you know, establish themselves. And I like helping manage authors' careers. Uh, I would still do it if it had been possible to to balance being an author myself uh, and, and being an agent, but it, it wasn't possible. Uh, I think you can be an unsuccessful author and an agent. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> uh -huh. It's not difficult to be uh, a successful author and an agent. It's just too hard to balance the two, um, but yeah. that, that's certainly my reserve job if I ever, I mean, it, but, it, but I agree. I mean, behind your question, I think it is a more difficult environment for agents and for publishers, um, authors and agents. Interests have always in the past been bound together as, as business partners. Um, now, as we're entering an era where authors can publish themselves, 
uh, electronically that actually separates the interest of the of the author and the agent to some degree. So that that can I think that can create or has the potential to create difficulties. Um, and it's and that changing environment it, it means that the, the business is more difficult too. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Do you think that uh, book territories are going to break down in the modern era now? Well, they'll break down if the American and British book territories break down. Yeah. Otherwise, mm. they won't. Um, I think they will in time, but it's probably going to be quite a long time because there's very powerful vested interests um, and shared interests uh, across the board supporting uh, those territories. And the mechanisms for maintaining them exist and, and have continued to exist. I mean, Amazon and, and Apple and so on seem to happily uh, you know, enforce those territorial considerations. Um, and consumers in general in America and the UK don't care. We, we have a, a unique situation here in Australia where they do care because we, you know, we, we are a small English-speaking country mm-hmm. uh, who, where books may not be totally available depending on, on uh, where they were first published. I think the UK and the US, it's not really an issue at all. Um, so we, we may give up our territory, ter- territory, territoriality, I was going to say, yep. um, before I decided that was way too difficult. One of the signs of that might be, um, but, but, you know, and maybe a harbinger of what's going to happen was this restructuring that Bloomsbury is undergoing now which will involve essentially, I guess, acquiring worldwide rights for, for, for e-books and things, including, I think, both the US, the UK, and Australia. But, but um, that's, that's an old story, really, in the sense that publishers always say they want world rights. Yeah. Um, even when I was at HarperCollins in the early 90s, the mantra was synergy between all the companies, and mm-hmm. we must acquire world rights so our sister companies will, will then go on and publish them. But, of course, well, that's the, true. the sister companies then don't. And in fact, it's almost a truism in publishing that it's easier to sell something to a different publisher than to your sister company. Yeah. <laughs> oh, very true. And it doesn't matter which company it is, uh, you know, which group you belong to. It's it's often, I think it's probably human nature that you send something to an editor who belongs to the same company in New York and they think they have to look at it, but they don't uh-huh. want it. Whereas uh, you come from a different perspective, I think it, but it does seem to be the case that it's always more difficult. The Bloomsbury thing is very interesting. They say we will, we will, we must have world rights, we must have world e rights, and I'm sure that's their policy. But those policies often don't do well when they meet reality. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, they come up against a book that they desperately want for the UK, something that's going uh-huh. to be absolutely huge, and the agent says you can only have UK. That's it. You can, yeah. have, you can have British Commonwealth and you can have electronic rights for British Commonwealth, but that's it, deal breaker. And they want it so much, they'll make an exception and so and they'll and they will buy it. And then of course it becomes an exception and then there's another exception and then there's another exception. It's, it's one of those things where the policy is always true of something they don't want very much. Yeah. Um, or or wow. they're not desperate to have or there's no competition to get it. So um, certainly they will buy, I'm sure they will buy world rights to lots of books where no one else is trying to get them or... When no one else wants them, yeah. This is, this is, yeah. Yeah. I, I guess I, or, I wondered because... I, I, sorry, yeah, continue. Well, I was going to say, or, or it's an unrepresented author who, who sends them something directly and they just buy it and 
and so on. I mean, the, the, what would be interesting is, is what happens when they have bought world rights, is if they successfully do publish it in all the territories where they bought world rights, uh, or they end up just publishing it in one territory and importing it into the other territory. And there's, there's all kinds of issues there as well, because you can get that, that classic colonial scenario where British publishers used to publish uh, they buy world rights or, British, or empire rights, which became British health rights, and they'd publish in the UK and they'd pay a proper royalty in the UK and then they'd pay a, a net price receiver royalty everywhere else they sent the book. So you could get that sort of scenario as well mm. where, where they, they are, they're buying world rights but they're really only publishing in one territory and they're, they're flogging it cheaply everywhere else. Uh, and then there's the e-book scenario where who knows what, they, what, they'll, what they'll do there in terms of what the author gets um right it's it's interesting but how it actually plays out there's a lot of room for maneuver yeah i guess i just i see the chafing most obviously when it comes to ebooks because that's where you know you go to amazon.co.uk and you can't buy something and you maybe you can't buy it from amazon.com either because you're in australia and so you think how do i get this book when i know it's available as an ebook and it, it mm. chafes it really does i mean i've had this experience myself i can't buy a whole bunch of books from amazon.co.uk because i'm in australia not in england yeah, yeah. Uh, nor can i buy them from amazon.com but they exist yeah and that's something publishers really need to work much much harder at, at rationalizing what rights they do have. And what's really annoying is when they do have the rights, they just haven't made it available. Mm. And, and that, right. is the case, that is the case for a lot of Australian, a lot of books you can buy in paper in Australia that Australian distributors or the Australian publisher just hasn't caught up with you know, their, their e-rights, whether they have them or not, and, and haven't, haven't sorted out whether, how to make it available. And that's something they're all working at, but I, I, I think they, they probably need to work at a lot harder to... Uh, to avoid totally understandable irritation. Mm. It's one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you guys yeah. because you've got this triple perspective <laughs> as an agent who's uh, in some ways a natural adversary of a publisher, but you've been a publisher and you've been into the chain. Yeah, I mean, I, I like to think of we're all business partners, uh, agent, author, publisher, bookseller. Uh-huh. We are all business partners who just don't happen to have exactly the same uh, goals, but we have right. we have many many shared goals. Mm. Just some of them, some and some of our interests don't completely align. And I think once you think of, and it's a better way to look at it than an adversarial position, because uh, once you go in, once you once you get into that sort of adversarial mindset, you get into that all publishers are evil and. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, it's 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 a recipe for ruin, really, or, or at least uh, possibly despair or or mania, um, because really we are all business partners who are occasionally at odds, but generally you can work out something that that's good for everyone. Yeah. Um, there are power issues always, you know, imbalances of power. Typically, the publishers have it all at the beginning, but but that doesn't always stay that way. Um, and of course, authors and agents are. Are very close business partners, mm. and then, oh, yeah. then, oh, yeah. then, then publishers are, are are the next level of of, of partner. But booksellers are partners too. Yeah, I was uh, going to say book buyers are the next uh, next yeah. level we haven't talked about. Yeah, well, that's true. I mean, and in, in, in a way, they are as well. Yeah. Well, on that note, probably we're beginning to drift towards the end of this. I think. I mean, um, 
just because you know we, we don't want to sort of go on and on at, at great length <laughs> as we sometimes do on this podcast. Oh, uh, no, <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> I'm, I'm enjoying myself here. <laughs> well, <a> pink drink. <laughs> well, pink drink would would actually set it off very nicely, um, and I'm sure there'll be a pink drink or two sort of come come San Diego. Absolutely. Uh, uh, and, and hopefully, uh, Gary, if I can get myself to Reno as well. Though I doubt very much you'll make that, Garth. Uh, I doubt, yes, that's, that's very unlikely. Though you never know. You never know. I am in the U.S. actually at the end of April. I'll be at the Los Angeles Times Book Festival. Mm -hmm. um, ah. And April 30th, May 1st, I think, with Sean. Sean okay. Williams will be talking about Trouble Twisters. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, uh, visit to the UK in June for uh, Hay Festival and uh, a few other things, a, a little tour, a two-week tour. Um, so that's, that's pro that'll, probably, that'll probably hold me until uh, World Fantasy at the end of October <laughs> in the US. So you never know. When, Reno's in August, isn't it? It is indeed, yeah, the end of uh, mid-August. Mid-August. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mid uh, ne never say never. <laughs> Okay, so we'll see happens. Yeah. Well, first of all, well, thank you very much. Well, Trouble Twisters is out in May from Alan and Unwin and Scholastic and everybody, and and Egmont in the UK. Egmont yeah. in the UK, and then hopefully, uh, as I say, having read the book, hopefully, Confusion of Princes, six or eight months later, I guess, something like that. Well, yeah, hard to tell. It might be next year. Yeah. It might, might be like March next year. We 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 shall see. I, 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 mm -hmm. Slowly. I have to ask: Will it remain a standalone? Uh, yes. Well, I have no intention to write anything else. <laughs> I have no intentions at present to write anything else. <laughs> okay. Well, on that happy note, thank you very much, Garth. I really appreciate it. No, thank you. It's been very nice chatting to you guys. Okay. And I'll talk to you, you next week, Gary. I will talk to you then. Okay. Cheers, Gary. Okay.